0: Killing the Author of Life. I want to read you something as an introduction this morning. A savage ocean storm awoke the crew of the Greyhound, a cargo ship crammed with merchandise collected from the west coast of Africa. From port to port, the ship had been slowly filled with African gold, ivory, beeswax, and camwood lumber. But now, late in the dark night of March 21st, 1748, a 22-year-old sailor named John was awakened by gale-force winds battering the ship. Waves slammed into her and ripped away the upper timbers on one side, sending water through a gaping hole into John's room. Awakened by the chaos, he jumped half-naked from his bed to furiously hand-pump water back into the swaying ocean. With the cold salt water pouring into the aging and broken vessel, crewmates grabbed buckets and began tossing the water back into the dark sea. Newton cranked for his life while waves broke over his head. Desperation overwhelmed the doomed crew. And John's heart pounded furiously with adrenaline-charged fears of being dumped overboard in the middle of a dark sea, weeks away from the nearest coastline. Like many sailors of his time, he couldn't swim. As John Newton later reflected, he was unfit to live and unfit to die. The fear of death strained his energies at the water pump, but it was a battle he could not win. Saltwater waves continued crashing against the ship, and the endless ocean of water rushed over the deck faster than the men could spit it back out. The ship creaked and groaned under the assault as the crew frantically battled the ang- angry forces of the sea. Newton's moral life had already sunk. He was a wicked and insubordinate young man with a profane tongue, flesh-driven appetites, and stone-cold heart. He had gambled his way into debt and dabbled in witchcraft. And as a young man in foreign lands, he had become sexually promiscuous. Later, as a young captain of a slave trading ship, he may have indulged in lusts further by raping captive African women in what he said, quote, the sexual free-for-alls on board ship that most captains in the trade regarded as theirs by right, end quote. He didn't particularly enjoy alcohol, but he drank to prompt drunkenness in others and to entertain himself by the follies the liquor encouraged in them. What is clear, Newton was immune from no sin. He delighted to lead others into temptation, later calling himself, quote, a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness. Life on the sea only amplified Newton's wretched tendencies. He sailed for months in a bubble of unchecked sin, estranged from godly examples, cut off from the gospel, hardened by the dangers of sea life, and entrenched among a group of men who enticed one another to sin. Life on an 18th century merchant ship was the spiritually deadening climate his soul least needed. If any man was unworthy of deliverance from the raging sea, it was the 22-year-old sailor John Newton. In this moment, Newton was focused on survival and frightened by the nearness of death that knocked on the door with each crashing wave. Desperate and fully expecting to die, Newton finally blurted aloud, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us, end quote. The Lord's name from his mouth that word he only spouted in vain, now struck his heart like an arrow, humbling and breaking him. Quote, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. End quote. You probably know that John Newton wrote famously a hymn called Amazing Grace. You may have also heard this dramatic story of his conversion this titan, John Newton, in the annals of church history, went on to pastor after this. Years later, he pastored in Olney, he pastored in London, and he loved and preached the gospel for 40 years after this, faithfully standing on the promises of God and preaching to lost and ruined sinners that he was the chief among sinners, as you heard in his testimony. He believed, like Paul, that he too was unworthy of grace. That's why he wrote Amazing Grace. Now, I share this story with you from 1748 as a stepping stone for you from today, 2022, as you sit here to hear me preach, I pray and hope is the true and beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, and to step stone back into 1748 to then where you see Newton's heart can be subdued by something called repentance, repentance faith in Christ leading to repentance, to then a stepping stone to 34, 35 AD when hundreds experienced the quickening ray and light of the gospel that is saving faith in Peter's sermon. For that's what's happened. What you just heard preached, if you look in chapter four to come in verse four, many believed on this gospel that was preached. Our hope in preaching the word of God is that the gospel can be heard, the gospel can be believed, and then the gospel can be treasured to give assurance of salvation. And today, we get to encounter together in the text a saving message of hope again in Peter's sermon. Our hope is that if you are here today lost at sea in your own life, that you will understand this sermon that we're going to look at and believe in Christ for the first time. It is a true hope, and we hold it out boldly every week. Our hope also is that if you are here today and have believed saints, church, people of God, then my hope is is that this sermon will assure you of salvation, will rescue, remind you of your rescuing from the seas of your own 18th century slave ship and the new heart you have. And I pray it will encourage you to walk in salvation. Our outline today through this sermon is to hear, first, the humility, to understand, second, the unexplainable, to turn from transgression, and finally, to have hope in the history. I'll give you that again if you're taking notes um, as we go along. So first point that we see right here in the beginning of this text this morning is to hear humility. Hear the humility there in verses 11 and 12, we jump into this text in the middle of a scene, okay? It's the middle of a story, kind of like this testimony I just read to you was us jumping into the middle of the ocean with a guy who's dying. Today, we jump into the middle of a scene, and it is a scene that has been filled with wonder and awe, like we saw last week. If you look in verse 10, just before our text, there has been a man who was crippled that has now been healed, okay? A man that everyone knew to be crippled for years is now walking. He's restored to full health. And the crowds are amassing around the man. And two individuals are with him, and they seem to be the ones responsible. That's the scene. And it is the setting for the sermon that we're trying to listen to again today. Notice in verse 11, that the man is clinging to Peter and John. You can almost see him, I think, with his arms around them, shouting as those began to assemble, praise God, these men have healed my legs. I can walk. Don't you see it? I mean, I can just see him embracing them as it says he clung to Peter and John. Now those who were in attendance were all planning to actually go past this place that's noted here, Solomon's portico, and those men who were Jews that were able to go in who were not ceremonially unclean would go into worship during the time of evening prayers. But their attention has been diverted and we see plans are seeming to change. Again, they're at this portion of the temple that Herod had built It's called Solomon's portico. It's this raised outermost part of the temple with tons of columns and a lot of space and everyone is gathering around in the outer court. Imagine the crowds that are gathering. What are they gathering for? Well, they want to see it. They want to hear what's going to happen in a moment like this. For many of us, we would understand Peter and John to be having a 15 minutes of fame type moment possibly, right? I mean, the bypasser are like, "What is going on?" They are there, being platformed. Peter and John are being platformed, and if it were today, I think iPhones would be coming out, ready to record the words or take a picture of the healed man. By the evening, they'd be a YouTube sensation. They would realize immediately that they are in the spotlight. Rather than the normal afternoon prayers, now something new has taken center stage. And that is in rivalry with those local priests, something that's actually going to be a problem we'll see in a future text. But for now, the scene is that these people are flocking to them. And we must be honest about what men and women who experience fame this quick, this, this sudden, do with it. I mean, the natural tendency of mankind is to let fame or a moment of fame go to the head, to become prideful, to begin to address from a heart of pride. But not our preachers. The rest of verse 12 gives us Peter's opening remark, and I think we will do well to hear it right here at the beginning, because we have to learn the saving message of the gospel through the lens of humility. Remember, hearing in humility. Look at 12b. Peter says boldly, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? (laughs) Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power and piety, we have made him walk. They question the men that are there. They question their assumptions. And by doing so, by asking this question, they make it plain. They are not the ones to claim power for this situation. Right out the bat, the first point of Peter's sermon is to call the attention where the attention is needed to be, not on them, but on God. And that comes through humility. Now, I am baffled with how humble... The apostles are in their preaching in the book of Acts. In your own time, maybe go this week to Acts 10. I want you to write that down and go to Acts 10 because if you do, you'll see in 15 through 26 an encounter between Peter and a man named Cornelius, a Gentile man. And when he shows up there to preach the gospel to them, Cornelius actually begins to try to worship Peter. He stops him and he says, what are you doing? I'm just a man like you. He's consistent. Or in your time this week, go to Acts 14. Because in Acts 14, you will see that there's another man crippled who gets healed in his feet. He's healed by Paul and Barnabas. And the Gentiles of that area, Lystra, they think that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods. They actually, the, the local priest to Zeus brings animals to sacrifice to them. And what do they do? They say the beginning of understanding what has happened is humility, not us. Brothers, what are you doing? It literally says Paul and them ripped their clothes to show, no, do not worship us. You must worship the one true God. And he points them through humility to have listening ears. I think this is this idea of humble preaching, a humility to be able to hear, you know, you have to come this way is the way of humility. I think it's a bit difficult for us today In the church, this is baffling for us as a starting point in regards to listening to preaching because we often consider the role that celebrity pastors have in the church today. So often we see those who brag about God seem to want to at times share the stage with him. That's a problem. Sometimes it's just subtle. Sometimes it's not. In today's church, followers of their favorite ministry or preacher or YouTube channel champion one another. They seek a platform, and we often see that Christians will do so by degrading other Christians by their opinions, secondary matters, all of which link us not to the humility we need to hear the gospel, but actually link us to the pride that will let us be opposed to God's grace. For it is God who said that he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We follow these men. We follow them via Twitter and in Facebook or Instagram, and, our, and the devotees there add to the pride by likes and shares and defense. Now, this morning, we need to hear humility. We need to hear it. If we're ever really to uncover the depths of the truths that we seek in the saving message of the gospel, we need to remember that this has always been true. Pride comes before a fall, and a haughty spirit comes before destruction. The idea is not to take my point now that I'm saying about hearing and humility and just go lambast those who we think are doing this, though I am bold enough, I think, and hope to say with you that we can, when we see it, let's condemn it. But let's look in our own heart. What do we set up in pride that prevents us from hearing the truth? You see, that's where Peter is at. The model of apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, the type of preaching that is effectual to grow a church that loves Jesus Christ, it's presented here in verse 12 in this simple question, in this simple question where he asks them, do you really think it is us for it is not? It's summarized well the way the Puritan preacher Richard Baxter, a famous Preacher in his own day said, he said, when I preach, I pray that I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. That's, that's true. That's the heart, not only of preaching, but of listening. The two men hanging on either side of this man that's been healed are dying men. Peter and John know that they're dying men and they know they're preaching to dying men. And so we must let death have its one benefit. If there's one benefit in death, do you know what it is? It's humility. Death is the ultimate leveler of all people. Everyone faces it and everyone is humbled by it. Even in death, we understand humility is necessary. So we hear the humility first of Peter and John explaining this miraculous source you know what that does? It leads us to our second point. It leads us to understand the unexplainable. That's point two. Understanding the unexplainable. Look in verses 13 through 16. I want you to hear 13 through 15 again. I'm going to read them. But I want you to think now about the invitation to receive this message in humility, to not propagate the preachers, as they have said, brothers, this is not us, and I want you to hear what they would say as a first, first spoken uh, moment here. To these Jewish men, they say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Peter and John are not miracle workers. They are humble witnesses. Great preachers are witnesses. They are there to explain the seeming unexplainable. They're there to give explanation to the unimaginable. They're there to show the truth that people, people like this group who preferred a murderer over the Messiah could be pardoned through the murder of the author of life himself. It's an immediate invitation into the depths. I mean, these verses are jam-packed with labels concerning Jesus and God. I mean, look at the text. In this text, Peter identifies God as what? He identifies him as God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of our fathers, and the one who raised Jesus from the dead. In these verses, Peter identifies Jesus as God's servant, the Holy One, the righteous one, and the author of life. Peter wastes no words. He lacks no passion or emphasis. He knows that these Jewish men are to deny Christ in this moment. It will be because of their own volition, not because of a lack of content that reveals the truth about who Jesus is. Now, why is Peter getting into these details so boldly that Jesus was handed over to Pilate? That Pilate tried to release Jesus and they instead opt to receive a criminal in exchange for him. What does it mean that they have killed the author of life? Do you see what I'm saying by understanding the unexplainable? They need an explanation, and Peter knows it, so he's bringing this up. Lots of questions come up, and that's the point. That's the point, because we can understand such an unexplainable truth only by the power of the preached gospel. God has ordained the preaching of the gospel to give explanation and to make sense and to bring clarity to those things which are dearest to God. Now, there's one textual reason why he asked these questions. Verse 1 of chapter 4 lets us know that there are present the chief priests and the rulers who, guess what, were actually the ones who committed these acts. That's very important. But most importantly for us, The reason why he's bringing these up are a lot like his first sermon that we heard at the day of Pentecost. It's because, guys, the truth about understanding the unexplainable is found in the idea that the judgment of God fell on Christ for the sins of the elect, so culpability and guilt can fall and does fall on all who look to Jesus as their Savior by faith. You guys, here's the point. We're all guilty, as are these men and women listening, regardless if they drove the spike into his hands or not. The question is, will they behold? Will we behold? Will the listener behold the guilt that was laid upon him? The understanding Peter preaches to these listeners is that it's not enough to just know We also must confess him as Lord. We must acknowledge our guilt before him. We killed the author of life. Peter's explanation to the unexplainable irony that that is. We killed the one who wrote and authored life and then he died that's what we did. That, that, that ownership is seen so clearly in this message. It's something that would immediately start firing off in the brain. It should. This is the heart of the gospel. Oswald Chambers said it so clearly. Listen, quote, We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we are sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of his forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. It does not matter who or what we are. There is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ. And Oswald says, by no other way. Not because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It is not earned, but accepted. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail, it is battering at a door other than the one that Jesus has opened. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we are all wrong. And I love what he said. Also, I said the atonement, and what he means by that is the application of Christ's death to those who believe. Okay, the atonement is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Jesus, makes an unholy man holy. We confess. We understand our guilt. We killed the author of life. That's what Peter's preaching here. He's giving understanding to the inexplicable. But then we look unto Jesus, don't we? He says here, we look to Jesus who beat death and believed that God raised him up. Peter's boldness and clarity, it's just, it's just, it's just stated. It's stated. And I want to make note here, and I would ask you to, that his boldness and clarity to preach the gospel to them its not politically motivated. It could have been. These men loved Jewish current day politics. But it's not motivated by that. It's not financially motivated. He told this man no silver nor gold did he have. What he had to give was healing in the name of Jesus Christ. And now he turns around and he says, I don't need any money for this message. He just preaches the truth. It's not financially motivated. It's not motivated by the emotions of the climate, though I'm sure that they were raging. It's not motivated by that. There's not a change in the man's circumstances that somehow is being manipulated to ask and others to believe and have enough faith. None of this is present. Peter is not feeling the pressure of a Jewish religion. He's willing to get beaten for this in the next chapter to come, chapters to come. It's not about them. He has one motive. His motivation is to witness to the saving work of God Almighty through the preaching of the resurrection to explain the unexplainable. Yes. Yes, Jews. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. So the awe and the wonder of the man finds its source and its hope in the explanation, most of all in Christ. You see that in verse 16, the conclusion there. Our attention's been brought back to the man in verse 16. And Peter's making it clear. It's like a sandwich of truth. He started out asking Understand this in humility. We didn't do this. Who did it? Gospel. And now the last piece of that bread that kind of points to the middle is again, verse 16. Make sure it be known. It is because of Jesus Christ that this man now walks. And it's because of that that you can believe. And then Peter gives overt clarity to the power of God. So, having heard the humble answer of Peter, having understood the unexplainable reality of the atonement, Now the crowd and us, the reader, are able to perceive and to receive from Peter a call to response. That's our third point this morning. Okay? In the text, we see a turning happens. It's a turning from transgression, turning from sin, turning from transgression. Point three, verses 17 through 21. Now, before seeing our last uh, points this morning, we really need to establish something. The timeline of redemptive history here. So that we are not confused about the specific contextual and scriptural and cultural references that are here in the rest of the passage in verses 17 uh, through, through the rest, through 26. Remember our outline for the book of Acts. It was given to us by Jesus himself. In Acts 1.8, it was Christ that said the gospel being preached through humility in a way that can be understood first is preached where? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where we are right now. Next, we'll see later in the book of Acts to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts will follow this explicitly. I'll bring this up for these last two points for us because they're very Jewish. They're very Jewish. And because we are in that first phase of God building his witness, his church, we're in that to the Jews first. That's where we are. However, Bible students, We say this in discipleship, if we let the Bible say what it says, it will always be a lot better than what we would manipulate it to say. And so it's good to see, even if it is Jewish, we can focus on how we can see it there and then apply it today. By better understanding through their lens, the context, we get the inheritance that was theirs, it can become ours. And it does. That... It's from the Old Testament scriptures that Peter will talk about on and on in the rest of this sermon. Now, look at verse 17 and 18, because the transition has happened, like I'm talking about, and now he's going to call him from that understanding that he has explained something inexplainable, you murdered the author of life. But now there's a response, he says, and now, brothers, verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He thus fulfilled. Now you may ask, ignorance, Peter? Are they excused from murdering the author of life? Maybe you read this, if you're like me, you think Peter may seem to be letting these guilty Jews who have rejected Jesus, maybe he's letting them off the hook lightly with this comment. But I want to tell you this morning, it's not so much a get-out-of-jail-free card that he's mentioning to them. It is a testimony to the depth of the love of God. It really is. It is reminiscent of what Jesus said himself from the cross. What Peter says here in verse 17, before he calls them to turn and repent, what he says here is reminiscent of what Jesus said, also recorded for us by Luke in Luke 23, verse 34. On the cross, Jesus said, Father forgive them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Though mainly attributed to those Roman soldiers by most, it is just as appropriate to hold out Jesus's words of pardon on the cross to the Jews who were there, to these Jews now in front of Peter. And listen, even you We're going to see later in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, that even the Gentiles will get to hear of God's kindness to ignore their ignorance. In Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, Paul, standing, talking to the brightest individuals in Athens, a bunch of Greek scholars who knew their stuff, says this, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Does that not sound just like Peter's message here? We have Peter and we have Paul. First, examples of apostolic preaching, they're clear. There is an ignorance to unbelief that can so deceive us and can be so intoxicating to us in our flesh that it would explain why we would be willing to kill the author of life. There is an ignorance and unbelief. So these Jews, Peter says, have been ignorant. They've been ignorant. And they have always ignored the truth of God. And they've done it for years. Look in verse 18 a little bit closer. Do you see there in verse 18 where, Paul, or excuse me, where Peter is making it clear that they have had the whole witness of the prophets testify this to them? that Christ would suffer, and that this has been fulfilled. Their ignorance in these matters is shown by this first example of many in this text where Peter points to the truth. He points to the promises, the content, and the story of the Old Testament Scripture. He points to their history. Now, no specific prophecy is mentioned here in verse 18. It's just a general reference given to encompass all the notions of the Old Testament, All those notions pointed them to one servant who would suffer and redeem Israel. It's most certain that Peter is speaking hyperbolically here, but we don't need to understand that he's exaggerating because he's not. In their mind, they know Isaiah 53 that explicitly defined a suffering servant of God to come. They know that in Daniel or in Ezekiel or in their worship books of the Psalms and other passages that it was true that one would come who would have to suffer for them, God's anointed. He's inviting these listeners to consider the vast love of God bound up in the Old Testament promises, that a suffering Savior has come and it's being all applied to Jesus. Friend, think for a second, okay? If, if it was in humility that they could hear and now it's out of this you know, ability because of the gospel to explain that they're the, they're the very murderers that are there, and that they have rejected, this, for a long time, living in ignorance and unbelief, the truth of God. You would think that if, if anything would happen in the preaching of the gospel in Peter as years went on, maybe he would begin to doubt that. But I love that what you hear here in verse 17 and 18 stayed true for Peter. All the way until he was writing, not to lost Jews that are here, but to save Jews in First Peter. Later we see that Peter never changes Uh, his message. I want you to hear verse Peter 2, 21 through 24. He says this to those Jews who did believe and are experiencing persecution. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus bore himself our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. That is him taking Isaiah 53 and applying it explicitly. Honestly, it's the application of the gospel invitation in our text. What he's holding out to these men is that they should come and see, come and behold the wondrous mystery of God's love, that in their ignorance before that, the love of God was at work. So these Jews in our text were both ignorant of God's redemptive work, and they were ignoring it. But you know what the grace of God can do when it's preached, when it's taught, when it's understood? The grace of God can overcome our ignorance. It can overcome our lethargy and our laziness. It can give life and peace to those who turn, which is the rest. Repent and believe. Look what he says in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And amen. The beauty of a text like that is that it preaches itself, right? We What was an invitation to understand and believe in the form of proclamation, it now changes to a command. It now changes to a command. Still through preaching, Peter now is going to press them to repent. Now, church, let's talk for a second because there's nothing that is sexy or pretty about the message of mankind's need for repentance. And we should not paint it as such. Repentance is the assurance of God doing violence against his own son on your behalf, recognized through the turning from sin in your life. I'm gonna say that again. Repentance is the assurance of God doing violence against his own son on your behalf, recognized through the turning from sin in your life. It is nothing short of that. And it is a precious gift to the believer. Consider the one that's saying this. Peter was told by Christ himself, okay, face to face with Jesus in Luke 22, Jesus looked at him and he said, Simon, Simon. Do you know Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat? But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fall. Listen to Jesus, who who tells Peter, he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him back then, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day till you have denied me three times. Now, we know, in fact, that this preacher did deny him. But notice, Jesus said, Peter, when you have turned again, do you see, it's the same word in our text as repent and turn back. It's the same word. And only those who have repented themselves can truly understand and call others to repent. It's the idea of he who is forgiven much forgives much. He understands it. He wants those he loves to experience such grace. Turn from transgression. Where does this message hit us today? Ask yourself honestly, church. Is there an understanding of true conversion that leads to faith and repentance in the cultural Christianity that surrounds us today? The answer is sadly no, and it's shocking sometimes. I have sat down with so many people who have heard the sermons growing up, have prayed the prayers growing up, eventually growing up to be absolutely clueless concerning living a life of repentance. You have too. Today we see the liberal churches, and I mean, I mean liberal theologically, not, not politically. We see uh, these type of churches amassing across our country, our states, and our cities Spreading the false notion that you can have eternal life in Christ and not walk in repentance. That's not true. Church is preaching that we can redefine morality, that we can redefine sexuality, that we can redefine a family structure, that we can redefine a lifestyle to our own truth or our feelings, and we baptize it in Christian language. It doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it any truth at all. And it does not lead people to the hope that is found in Christ alone through repentance. We must take note from this text and apply it principally today and to the future days. These men and women in the text, they needed to know, like we do today, that nothing in their attempts then at being personally religious, there's nothing in their own attempts to try to muster up some kind of saving ritual in the temple There was nothing that they could do societally to change and do enough good deeds to try to offset what they needed. There was not enough equality they could pursue. There was no freedom from oppression that they had and knew and experienced. And just like us today, there was no social change that would bring true refreshment and restoration to their lives as Peter's talking about the gospel will. What they heard then, and what we hear now as we study and preach this, is a perfect prescription for the disease of ignorance and ignoring sin in your life. Repent. Turn back to God. It's not eloquent, it's a bit brutish, but it comes with the greatest news. Okay? If, if they're going to hear in humility, they're going to understand the unexplainable, and then they actually will turn from their sin. Peter says, repent, turn back. And what did he say? Your sins will be blotted out. We must press pause and realize what this means. Christ who was raised, Christ who reigns, promises to fill the heart by faith with his own spirit. He, he says he will put into us a keeping, staying, steady, powerful love of God that cannot separate us from God himself. Man, we need to realize the scandalous nature of grace. When it says blot out sin entirely, the word means wipe away. It literally means wipe out. It means, my favorite translation of it, to cancel. To cancel sin in our lives when we repent. This is profound. We sang about it, right, in the form of a question. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the answer to the song is yes, it can be. For Christ blots out the record of debt, of sin. He cancels it. Now, the same word appears in the writings of Paul to the church in Colossae. And I love it. You need to listen to Colossians 2.13. I pray it is refreshing to you. Paul writes to the church there and he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling, there's that word again, blotted out, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God, this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I remember in my own life realizing the power of this cancellation of my sin, debt. And I remember the fire that it gave me to obey Christ and pursue the Lord. It was during my marriage counseling with Brittany. I was reading a book uh, for that counseling to get ready for marriage by John Piper, and I'll never forget, and I underlined it, and I, I was, it, was, it was encouraging even this week to go back and read it again. In that book, Piper said this, quote, Be sure you see this most wonderful and astonishing of all truths, that God took the record of all your sins, that made you a debtor to wrath. Sins are offensive against God and they bring down his wrath. And instead, instead of holding them up in front of your face and using them as a warrant to send you to hell, God put them in the palm of his son's hand and he drove a spike through it, canceling them. Piper said, it's a bold and graphic statement. He canceled the record of our debt, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. Now for me in that season of my life, With my fiance, now my wife, I was trying to pursue purity. We were trying to pursue it together. I was personally walking out of immoralities and lusts. It was a hard season, but it was the hope of repentance, knowing that my sin had been blotted out that gave me the strength to die to my flesh in those days. And it is the same for me today. It was not that I could sin and that grace would abound. No, no, no. It was that I could obey Christ from a pure heart, and then when I failed, grace abounded because God had blotted it out. God was overlooking my ignorance. He was overlooking my inabilities. He was giving understanding. This is what happens. When we believe and we repent, our sins are blotted out. Times of refreshing become ours because we gain communion with God. Christ gets sent into our heart as prophet, priest, and king, and the Spirit of God abounds in us. While Christ goes and presents himself in heaven, Peter said, presenting before God who would judge a right sacrifice, way better than the earthly temple in that great moment, he stands there as the accepted lamb for us. All spoken here, turn from your transgressions, repent and believe. Now, at this point, we say amen, amen, amen at this sermon. Uh, If we were Baptists, we'd be done, right? That's three points after all. (laughs) But hear the humility, understand the unexplainable, and turn from transgressions. But please remember, I told you that these men were Jewish, and Peter knows his audience. And the words of Christ ring in his ear in Acts 1a, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Notice the last words of verse 21. God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter has one more point that we need to see, and it's the hope of history. It's the hope of history. The last verses 22 through 26. Now now listen, for for time's sake, we won't read those verses again or really even get into the depths of them. But here's my exhortation to us as a church body this morning. It is to notice that Peter's evangelistic zeal his love for the lost among them, okay? His fellow brothers that he lived with and understood. You know what it leads him to do? It leads him to thoroughly and patiently and lovingly point out the hurdles that these Jewish men and women would possibly have with, with turning from their sin and following Jesus. That's what this next section is about. It's about the example of a good apologist, a good evangelist, a good witness. You see, good witnesses, they labor for as long as it takes and as long as they can to see that those that they love come to faith in Christ. One famous pastor famously said this, God may have a longer time span in mind when we are evangelizing and discipling than we do. As one writer has observed, the seed may lie under the earth until we do and then spring up. Peter knows that. He understood it. And he would labor in this church until his death. We know that when later the church is scattered and they come back, who do they come back to see? Peter and John. They remain in Jerusalem through persecution, through trials. Peter will continually say this message over and over again to these hard-hearted priests and Jews that don't believe. He'll bear the, the stripes on his back, will say, I care about you. Have hope in our history, brothers. In our text, he shows them Moses He shows them Samuel and the major and the minor prophets to come. He even shows them their earliest and their first forefather, Abraham. And he does all this from love and from a concern. He's concerned that they are so close to belief, but they may be missing it entirely. See, if they don't connect the dots concerning the difference between the common grace they understood and understanding those Old Testament promises and the explicit grace and the revelation of Jesus Christ, they'll go to hell. Let Let me say this. A simple exposure to the common grace of God that doesn't transform a person through the powerful working of God by faith is possibly the most dangerous road to hell known to man. You can be so close to the assumption of your own salvation because of what you point to culturally or historically or even scripturally and miss it. That is a dangerous, dangerous thing. A simple exposure to the common grace of God in these Jews that doesn't transform them, that doesn't show them the powerful working of God by faith is a dangerous road to hell. And so verse 26 wraps up this section in hope perfectly. After those explanations where he loves them enough to say, do you know what Moses meant? Do you know what Samuel meant? Do you know what the prophets pointed to you? Do you understand the father Abraham, the covenant you're included in? God, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first, to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So having shown and concluded with them that the Torah, Moses, the prophets, Samuel, and all the prophets mentioned here, the promises, Abraham and the sign of the old covenant, he says, all of them pointed to Jesus. Brothers, all them point to Jesus, have hope in this history. It is the hope that Jesus was sent by God, that Jesus died, and that God raised him from the dead. And this, this was so that they would first believe. How? The same way that you and I would. By receiving salvation as a free gift seen in faith. That in repentance, they would keep with repentance. That they would turn from their wickedness as it ends here, and that they may include a turning from their idolatry of their own religion. There's some things that are good in their life that they may need to repent of, and they can be blessed by it. There is so much hope in the history. I hope you study it this week. You can see this expounded by reading Peter's letters, where he says more about this. Go read the letter of the Hebrews. Where, where, it's, where it's explicit, go see Paul's letters or Jude, this, the half-brother of Jesus who was likely standing there in this moment. We know that James, his other half-brother, wrote a letter trying to encourage these people. I mean, these disciples labored in love for years alongside these. Why? Hoping that the history that they said they knew would point them to turn from their sins, would give them an understanding, that they would receive it in humility this sermon works its way backwards as it works its way out in the rest of the New Testament. So Peter's second sermon in Jerusalem is complete. Those who hear it, hear it through humility. Those who understand it, understand that it points to some really unexplainable things, that God would forgive murderers who, authored, who killed the author of life. That those who really believe, they turn, they repent from their transgressions and they have a hope in the history, now theirs. So now the future awaits for these men. And I can say confidently for you and me as well. So today as we pray and we respond in song and we sing about God holding us fast, I think it's important to note that as we do that and take the Lord's Supper, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God is how we started today's service. And we'll conclude with something that is not a mystery. It's made known very plainly what we're about to do. But what is to come, which only the Father knows, Jesus' return and eventually our consummation of being with him forever, that is a hope that we have. And it is a motivating hope. Okay, we hold it out to the lost to repent and believe it. We hold it out to one another to gather around it. And so that's what we're gonna get to do in response. My hope is, is that we will always have ears to hear such sermons and that God will keep using them to perfect our faith. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we close in prayer. Asking that you would be made known among us. As you beat down the walls of the ship of John Newton. As you really worked heartily for decades to come from this sermon from Peter and the many more. And the ink that was spilt in Holy Scripture. Calling our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ of the Jewish faith to repent and believe on you as the Messiah. Father, as you have sent missionaries across land and sea, and and, and for us, God, you've sent people to preach the gospel to us. Father, as we hold out the gospel to others that are in our lives that are lost, to our own children, God, that are lost, to those that we would believe by hope that you're going to save, help us to be preachers of humility, hearing in humility ourselves. Help us to be the people who can explain the unexplainable, give understanding to the things that are the deeper things that belong to you. Father, mark our lives by repentance. Help us to love repentance and see it as the good gift that it is. And Father, teach us from history that there is great hope and there is a great hope to come. And so in all this, God, we pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.